Hello, everybody, uh, and Kia Ora. Uh, more than 400 people are registered for today's webinar. Uh, welcome to you all, and thanks for joining us. So today we will talk about the methodology and results of the 2021 National Walking and Cycling Participation Survey, and we will also look at how the data uh, has been used in different states. My name is Ekaterina, I'm a Communications Officer at Austroads, and I will be moderating today's session together with Sam Bolton, Executive Officer uh, Cycling and Walking Australia and New Zealand. Sam will moderate the Q&A at the end of the webinar. First of all, I would like to acknowledge the Australian Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people as the custodians of the land from which we are broadcasting today. I pay my respect to all this past, present and emerging. I also acknowledge the Treaty of Waitani and Maori as the regional people of New Zealand. Um, today's webinar is facilitated by Cycling and Walking Australia and New Zealand in conjunction with Austroads uh, and with participation of the Department of Transport and Main Roads Queensland and the Department of Transport Western Australia. A little bit of housekeeping. Um, so our presenters will speak for about 40 minutes and then we will have a Q&A session uh, for about 15 minutes. The slides and the survey for today's presentation can be downloaded from the handout section of your sidebar, which you will find on the right hand side of your screen. Um, to send us your questions for the Q&A, please uh, use the questions icon on that sidebar. If your question relates to any particular slide, um, include the number of that slide in your message to help us answer your question as best um, as we can. Also let us know if you are experiencing any technical problems, uh, but just a quick tip, if you lose sound or your picture freezes, the issue is most likely with your internet connection. So closing your browser and rejoining again using your um, email registration link usually helps. Um, this session has been recorded and we will let you know when the recording is available on our website. If you listen to podcasts, um, you can find Austroads in your podcast app. Um, so our presenters for today, um, Cameron Munro, uh, Dr. Zarin Solta, and Robin Davis. We will first hear from Cameron Munro. Um, Cameron is an independent consultant specializing in uh, data analytics and the evaluation of cycling and walking infrastructure projects. Our next presenter is Dr. Zarin Solta. Zarin oversees uh, data collection, analytics and reporting on cycling and active transport trends for Western Australia. She's currently leading uh, the planning and management of two high priority evaluation projects for the cycling team um, at the state's Department of Transport. And our third presenter is Robin Davis. Uh, Robin is an urbanist and transport planner with over 20 years um, experience working in state and local governments in Australia and the UK, um, including 15 years in the Department of Transport and Main Roads in Queensland. Uh, welcome to all our presenters um, and over to you, Cameron. Okay, thank you very much for the introduction. Uh, good day, everyone. So I'm just going to go through the methodology of the walking and cycling participation survey and present some headline results from that survey. So the survey originated as the National Cycling Participation Survey back in 2011 in response to the then National Cycling Strategy, which had it as its objective to double cycling participation over the life of the strategy. The survey has been conducted by NLE since 2011 at a national level. 
And in addition, there have been local government surveys conducted annually as required by those local authorities. The methodology is one based on computer-assisted telephone interviewing, or CATI, using commercially available phone list providers. It's a dual frame sample consisting of a mix of landline and mobile telephone numbers. And that mix has evolved over time. So in around 2011, around 80% of the sample were landline. And in the most recent year, 2021, only around 10% were landline. Numbers are redialed up to three times at different times of day and days of week before exhaustion in order to minimise the likelihood of sampling bias. And the field work period extends each year from around March to sometime in May in order to, as best we can, accommodate the shoulder seasonal period both in the southern states before it gets too cold and wet in winter and in the northern states uh, after the, the hot humid period. In 2021, the sample size consisted of around 4,500 households nationwide or just under 12,000 individuals. The sampling method was a stratified sample, so population fraction quotas were established for each of the eight states and territories, and within each of those states and territories for capital city and regional areas. The main respondent, that is the person who answered the phone, who aged 15 or above, responds on behalf of all household members. That is, it's a proxy reporting methodology. In this way, we ensure population coverage. That is, we uh, obtain data on uh, children aged under 15, but of course, at the risk of some loss of reliability, given that we're asking indirectly. And depending on the composition of the household, there will be questions obviously for some group households as to how reliably one respondent can report the uh, cycling and walking behaviours of other household members. We do assume also that children aged under two do not walk or ride a bike. Households are weighted to the census, uh, to census household size compositions for each of the strata and individuals are weighted both by gender and age uh, group. The, question, the questionnaire is fundamentally about participation, not travel. And I wanna be quite clear of that distinction. If the key question in the survey is along the lines of, have you walked or ridden over the past week, month or year? Rather than how many trips have you made? On the basis that it's a recall survey and there are any number of recollection and definitional problems in asking someone to remember how many walking or riding trips they may have made over a preceding period of time. It becomes quite complex very quickly to define what exactly walking and cycling is. For the purpose of this survey, we defined walking as a continuous walking for more than five minutes outside of the home. In that way, we discount short walking trips, perhaps from your house to the garage to get into your car, but we try and uh, still accommodate short, relatively short walking trips, perhaps to the shops or from a 
train station to an office at a, at, at a destination. We include walking with walking aids, wheelchairs, mobility scooters, but we exclude activities like gardening, treadmill walking at home or in the gym. In the definition of cycling, we include, as, long, as well as the usual uh, definition of a bike, uh, electrically assisted bikes, pedal trikes, children's bikes with training wheels, but we exclude registered vehicles like mopeds and children's riding toys like kick bikes, trikes and scooters, and also exclude stationary exercise bikes. So having a quick look at the results from the cycling uh, survey first. So as I mentioned, the cycling participation survey was first fielded in 2011 and has been with some, some modest changes, largely unchanged from 2011 to 2019 with more significant changes in the most recent year, 2021. So what we see here is the change in participation rate so on the vertical axis is the participation rate, that is the proportion of the population that have ridden a bicycle over the past week, month or year out of the total population. And we can see a, a in general, a steady decline in the participation rate since 2011, but then with a significant jump since 20, between 2019 and 2021 noting that the 2021 survey was conducted between March and May of last year, which for many states was a period between uh, COVID-related lockdowns. Just a little note on the error bars in interpreting this sort of data. One wants to be careful given the uh, sampling variability in, in assessing the statistical significance of changes. So a significant difference for the purposes of, of this is to look at where a, a central indicator, the estimate, uh, is outside the, falls outside the range of the error bars. And that was on that first example. And on the second one, we can see there's an insignificant difference in the annual participation rate between 2017 and 2019. That is, we can't be confident that the difference is not simply due to sampling variability. Having a look at the 2020-2021 data across jurisdictions, the average participation rate measured over the past week is around 18% nationwide, but significantly higher in the ACT, WA and Northern Territory and lower in New South Wales. And that trend applies equally when measured across the past week, month or year, as it has done across other years in which the survey has been conducted. So that trend is fairly consistent. The cycling participation rate by gender is shown here, again, both as measured over the past week, month and year. And the participation rate is consistently significantly higher among males than females. And we can see also that the general trend applies consistently across genders. That is a declining participation rate between 2011 and 2019, followed by a significant uplift in 2021. 
across age groups, it becomes a little bit more difficult, largely because of the, the sampling sizes, sample sizes. But the two key trends I'd point to, or the single key trend that I'd point to here, is that children, that is the two blue bars here, aged those aged under 10 and those and teenagers aged 10 to 17, have very significantly higher cycling participation rates than all adults. Uh, and then the variation over time is a little difficult to, to ascertain, given that the sample sizes are relatively small of those child age groups in particular. One of the other questions that is asked in the survey is uh, around cycling frequency. That is, would you say you cycle more as or less frequently than a year ago? And fairly consistently, we see a trend whereby those who currently cycle say they do so less often than they did last year. Another aspect that we examined was, was churn. That is the notion that those who are riding now may have in some cases been consistently doing so over a number of years or even decades. And then there are those who perhaps were lapsed cyclists who have now returned to riding. And then again, there are those who are all new to cycling. Often they will of course be children. And so the majority, around 60% in the most recent survey, have been riding continuously for more than a year. But notably around a quarter of the cycling population have returned over a after a break of a year or more which suggests to me that there's a fairly large churn in the cycling population amongst those that may have ridden for whatever reason previously and have now, after a gap, have now returned to riding. In terms of cycling purpose, the vast majority of those who do ride indicate they do so for recreation, but about a third do so for a transport purpose. And noting, of course, that these are overlapping, there will be a significant fraction of the sample that ride both for transport and for recreation. And those fractions haven't changed markedly over the years. Bicycle ownership does not seem to be a limitation on riding participation. Around 55 to 60% of all households in Australia seem to have access to a working bicycle. And we define a working bicycle here as one which is essentially mechanically complete that may have flat tyres, uh, that sort of minor uh, limitation. And again, that hasn't changed markedly since 2011. Turning to walking. This one's a little trickier, uh, noting that the definition of walking here in, was included all trips even of up to of down to five minutes in duration. So we find the vast majority of the population walk at least once over, over the past week for five minutes or more. Only around 3.3% of the population do not do so. And a significant part of that around two thirds will be children aged under two. Why do people walk? The majority of those who have walked in the past week indicate they do so for recreation or for exercise. 
around 80 odd percent, followed by access to shopping or walking around in shopping centres, given that that is included as a walking purpose, uh, to cafes or restaurants to visit friends and so on down. Around a quarter uh, walking as part of their commute to work. So turning to the key finding from the survey, we find that the cycling participation rate has decreased between 2011 and 2019, before rising significantly during the COVID pandemic. The participation rate is much higher among males, than, among males and children, and that trend is consistent both across time and across jurisdictions. That recreation cycling is the dominant trip purpose and that there is a constant churn in the cycling market, which I alluded to a moment ago, whereby around a quarter of those who are cycling currently did not do so this time last year. In terms of walking, participation in walking, as we've defined it quite broadly here, is almost universal among those who have sufficient physical mobility. And recreation is the dominant trip purpose, but so too are many of the local transport trips like shopping, access to cafes and restaurants. Just some final observations on the survey, some sort of learnings that we've garnered over the years. Commuter cycling by adults is a minor part of cycling activity. And this for those of us in the transport planning space is perhaps a significant um, finding. Noting that an awful lot of cycling activity is occurring in local streets by children, by families, and on parks and on paths. And it's not the stereotypical lycra rider to, to CBDs, although of course that has a disproportionate transport impact. Uh, demographics matter. We see that as one moves through the age cohorts, the likelihood of riding decreases markedly. So in an ageing society of which Australia is, cycling participation will decline over time if nothing else changes. And finally, just a comment perhaps on methodology that the measurement should match the intervention. So to have an impact at population scale on cycling activity, we need, we need to intervene at, that, at a population scale. And I would suggest that we just have not been doing that in Australia over the past decade. And therefore the trends that we were observing uh, are swamped by uh, cultural and other shifts in society. And finally, that sub-regional trends differ. So although these might be headline statistics at the national, state, or even capital city level, just because cycling participation may be declining, say for example, in Melbourne overall, does not mean that is also true of a particular suburban, inner suburban area, middle suburban area, or something else. And so it is, Using other data sources, we can observe different trends in particular locations, uh, but, but this is more a, a broader context. Okay, and with that, I'll hand back to you, Ekaterina. Thanks, Cameron. Um, 
this slide is just a quick reminder for everybody to send their questions through, but we can see there are already lots and lots of questions. So thanks so much. Keep them coming. And I will uh, pass over to Zareen in a second. Morning, everyone. Thanks so much. Well, good afternoon if you're on the East Coast. Um, thanks so much for inviting me to speak today. So I'm chiming in from Western Australia and talking about the um, approaches to monitoring and evaluation of the activities and uh, programs and projects that we undertake over here. To provide a bit of context at first, just uh, slides, there we go. Um, wanted to give you an overview of the kinds of projects and programs that we're undertaking across the entire state, um, being a very large one, of course, as you can see here. Um, one of the ma main things that we've been undertaking in the last few years is the identification of the long-term cycling network uh, across major regional centres um, across the whole state, as well as obviously Perth and Peel. Um, this mapping process has basically been to identify um, major primary, secondary and local routes, and it's all been done in conjunction with local government authorities in each of these localities and regions. We're halfway through that process. We've currently um, fully identified six LTCNs and there's another six to go, um, and they all get ratified by the various stakeholders involved in that process. In addition to the identification of those uh, routes, primary, secondary and local, We've then undertaken a process to map the gaps um, according to a categorization process that we've come up with using some of the intelligence from survey data, which I'll get to later. Um, in addition to that, we use a whole range of data to inform the placement and design of future investment. Of course, we do that by evaluating our current and past projects and monitoring network changes um, across the board. Um, and it's also relevant to note that infrastructure or activation projects in Western Australia can be funded in full or in part by the WA state government by the West Australian Bike Network suite of programs. So that includes our principal shared path uh, program, which is delivered um, in full conjunction with the main roads Western Australia. And they're predominantly um, high quality shared paths that run in parallel with our um, freeway network or rail network in Perth. Um, there are some other projects that stand out within that program as well, but uh, those are the predominant um, types of program projects undertaken within that program. Then we also have the um, Perth Bike Network and Regional Bike Network programs, which are um, in conjunction with local government authorities. We collaborate with those local governments. They'll put up a um, submission for 50-50 grant funding and each of those grants is assessed, uh, determined whether or not it can be funded in this uh, funding round or future funding rounds, or if there's additional information required, et cetera. Um, and that's a very comprehensive um, program as well. Then we also have another program called the Safe Active Streets Program, which until this year has been in pilot phase. So we've been trialing this um, suite of intensive redesigns on local um, streets and they're called, we've called it Safe Active Streets, and that's been since 2015. We've now got nine different Safe Active Streets across the state, predominantly in Perth. And as of the following financial year, that program will be rolled into the PBN or RVN program in order to be able to be offered to local governments on a 50-50 funding basis. 
Um, okay, so in terms of the evaluation and monitoring of these programs, is that slide coming up for you? Let me try that again. Okay, um, I'm hoping you can see the slide clearly. It's doing something funny on my screen. I think we can, Zarin, all good. good. Yeah. Great, thank you. Um, okay, so in terms of the evaluation and monitoring that I talked about before, so critically we evaluate um, these certain PSP key investment programs that are of high um, value and high investment, as well as that Safe Active Street Pilot Evaluation Program. So those are two um, major evaluations that are under my um, coordination. Then we also have regular monitoring of ongoing programs and as well as network status. So as I mentioned, the PBNRBN grants program, so that's mostly a monitoring of outputs in relation to the grant applications and assessment process and uh, the delivered infrastructure. And we also have um, a suite of travel behavior change programs and also activation projects that are undertaken um, for particular pieces of infrastructure, which all have um, monitoring involved in those. And of course, underlying everything is, in a, is a general monitoring of the network via fixed piezoelectric counters and surveys. So I'll just talk about that briefly. So our quantitative monitoring, as I mentioned, we've got piezoelectric bike counter network across Perth uh, metropolitan key regional locations. Um, we currently have about 67 different fixed piezoelectric bike counters. Um, and as you can see by the map here, we've recently undertaken a process of identifying how we could be grouping those and deriving particular intelligence from the groups of counters. So obviously we've been looking at the CBD cordon for quite a long time now, um, and that's the purple dots if you can see on the map. Um, but we've recently determined that certain other locations such as picturesque sites, which you can see here in the green dots, which are adjacent to the river or the ocean, um, actually pick up on different kinds of activity trends. So you might see, we have seen, particularly in relation to COVID lockdowns in 2020, um, huge increases in what would be called recreational activity. So surges of, of bike riding volumes on the weekends or at certain um, after our, you know, afternoon hours, et cetera. Um, then of course we've split out our regional north and regional south counter sites and you see very different trends um, in the regions, the northern and the southern here in Western Australia because of our vast differences in, um, in temperatures, et cetera. So there's different um, patterns across the year that illustrated there. We've also identified that some of our counters fall within suburban locations and pick up on a different suite of patterns there that are that can be identified as um, and in conjunction with what's going on in the CBD. So we can try and unpack some of the behaviour of that we're probably picking up more in the last year and a half on working from home. Um, we also have access to Strava Metro data and we look at that data in relation to particular programs and projects that might be undertaken, for example, the PSP key infrastructure projects and look at maybe the use of alternative routes um, or a switch of users from alternative routes to the main infrastructure we've just delivered. Um, now, of course, I fully understand that Strava data is a heavily biased data set, um, but when we look at it, we always look at it in conjunction with our fixed counter network to, to, to try and derive just understanding of patterns and trends and build that up from a triangulation process. Um, then, of course, we have uh, comprehensive Perth travel, Perth area travel household surveys that are undertaken by Main Roads Western Australia, but in, our, in conjunction with our modelling team here at the Department of Transport. And that's to inform you know, the development of the 
of the transport models going forward, which of course includes um, cycling and walking. We have a suite of qualitative monitoring as well that's ongoing. Of course, uh, the National Walking Cycling Participation Surveys, for which in 2021 we paid for an, a boosted sample size, so we had better representation across the region. Um, contextual guidance research, which I'm going to talk more about in a minute. Uh, we also have annual Perth and Peel population surveys and a suite of other different things in, in terms of the projects we deliver, like I mentioned, the uh, PSP program and the Safe Active Street program and an interest in monitoring wellbeing and health outcomes. I'm not going to get into that just now because I want to explain an example. So one of the examples that we've been quite interested in the last year it, from, and it was also picked up in the recent um, NWCPS surveys, um, is in relation to typologies of bike riders. So obviously we're looking at a number of different trends in those surveys that we collect. So uh, in terms of bike riding, weekly participation, by year, demographic group regions, trip purpose, like uh, Cam went through, and e-ridables e was picked up, I think, in the 2021 survey and walking. Um, as I mentioned, we, yeah, additionally funded the, the um, our portion of the 2021 sample so that we were um, more confident in the representation across different demographic groups as we dug into the data. Um, but this particular example that I've um, included on the screen here is in relation to what we've identified as four different typologies of rider. So we asked, we worked with Cam um, to include uh, this and it wasn't too much of Dive away oh, from what was previously undertaken in, in the other years of the NCPS people according to how they answered to a suite of different questions. Yeah, is it stuck? Apologies. Are you seeing that? Yeah, you're back now. Um, yeah, you were frozen for a I'm little bit. I'm just going to carry on because I'm not sure. If yeah, okay. all good. Carry on. Okay, okay, great. Um, all right, I'm not sure what you caught there, but basically I was saying we worked with Cam to include that question um, or, you know, um, a new categorization process in order to unpack some of the data that might have already been included in previous years of the sample. But the particular piece of interest here is, um, as you can see on the screen right now, um, a categorization of cyclists into these four different categories, um, which if you're familiar with work by Geller, in 2006 and then um, studies by Dylan McNeil in 2013 and 2016, um, there's this concept of these four types of cyclists and this type of work has been, or categorization process has been widely adopted um, by transport planners since then and uh, replicated in other parts of the world. So we picked up on that and we've included that into some research to look at what types of infrastructure uh, that particular subcategory interested but concerned so the people that indicate that they would take up riding more if they felt more comfortable, what particular piece of infrastructure would help them feel more comfortable? What do they associate with comfort when presented with a series of options? So a colleague of mine here um, has undertaken that piece of work with, uh, with a consultancy and they've come up with some very interesting insights. But as part of that, they picked up on the methodolo methodological differences in the way that the surveys were undertaken. So, over here, we used a user-self-ascribed categorization methodology where the respondents to the surveys actually self-categorized into one of those four groups um, as essentially an attitudinal question, whereas other ways of applying this survey, um, as well as in the NC, NWCPS, 
was predominantly a, 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 an indirect survey-derived categorization methodology. So we felt that there was an opportunity here to pick it apart based on regions, so Australia versus the US, and then methodology um, respondent type um, options. Um, the example that I've got here on the screen real quick, this is how you might visualize them, so how I visualize them. So you might think that the people on the bikes currently in the picture on the path could might describe themselves as, as enthused and confident, whereas a person walking there could be interested but concerned, whereas someone else who's riding on the road might categorize themselves as strong and fearless. Now, that's a really simplistic um, description there, but that's kind of the way that, um, you know, you can simply understand the concept. So here's just a description, uh, an illustration of how these user groups might be segmented. Oh, sorry, how um, the results pan out across the different methodology types. And the intention here was to, as I said, define that market segment, the interested but concerned group. So in Western Australia, from the respondent self-assigned categorization process, we've quite we've re repeated it in a series of um, pieces of research, and really picked out this around about a 35%, you know, market segment of that interested but concerned category. Um, and it was really interesting to see that uh, in the NWCPS. Uh, recently, it was a similar chunk of that segment, but but different um, enough to think, oh, well, there might be a, an influence here of the methodology and also the place in the world. So Australia being quite different to the US in the way that people might um, associate with the infrastructure that's available and the levels of confidence, etc. There's probably a piece of research in that if somebody wanted to pick it apart or a research student somewhere in Australia wanted to dive into this. But the key uh, insight that we've taken from this is that there's a decent chunk of the market, around about 35% in Western Australia, who would associate with being interested but concerned. And if we build the infrastructure sufficient for that market segment, then it's going to definitely be sufficient for anyone above that. Um, and of course, anyone below, well, they're not going to get on a bike anyway. Okay, so how do we use it? This is my last slide. Um, as I said, we wanted to quantify that market segment, determine what infrastructure conditions would make them feel more comfortable, um, detect if this group reports increased behavioural intentions based on the potential for that infrastructure to shift in their locality, and promote design guidelines that use those preferences as the lowest common denominator in terms of being able to see a, a potential uplift in, uh, in um, trip pipes. Then triangulate this typology data with other data points like actual measures of weekly bike riding participation in pre and post surveys after the delivery of a piece of infrastructure, looking at travel times or trip purposes, whether or not that's more diverse or longer travel times among that particular user, user segment. Um, we can then use some of those behavioural insights and apply them to algorithms during scenario testing and modelling of active transport. That's an intention that we are planning to head towards. Um, and very importantly, we've actually used that market segment and their particular preferences of infrastructure type as the basic um, level of categorization for what we would define as adequate or inadequate in terms of um, the mapping of our of our um, long-term cycling network. So this map here is an example of that. Here's a, our Perth CBD and how we've identified the primary, secondary and local routes and what else we can do with that spatial data now that we've got it. We can identify key activity areas or schools and the kilometres of path of a particular um, primary, secondary or local route that is deemed inadequate or non-existing. 
and then use that obviously in funding applications and business case development. So that's where we're at. And um, yeah, anyone has any queries or questions, please reach out. Thank you very much. Hello, everyone. Uh, my name's Robin Davies, so I assume I'm just uh, taking over now. Thanks, Sarin. It's fantastic, really interesting research and work that you're doing. Um, so uh, thank you very much for the opportunity to speak today. Uh, I'm going to talk to you more with a walking focus. So I'll talk about our Queensland walking strategy work and the related data needs and how it relates to the walking results from the national survey. Uh, we do have a video about um, the work of transport and main roads, but we unfortunately had a few difficulties in getting it to work. Um, so Ekaterina was going to put a link to it in, sorry, in uh, the chat uh, if you would like to watch it. It is quite a fun video and does give a, a, a great overview of the very, uh, the huge amount of work in a huge state that the department does. Uh, so in 2019, the Queensland Government launched the Queensland Walking Strategy, uh, which consists of the three documents you see on the screen. So the Walking Strategy gives the 10, it's the 10 year um, document that sets the vision uh, the and the overall direction, themes, principles and action areas. It's supported by the two year action plan for walking and um, and also there's a Walking Queensland report from 2019 which sets the baseline and allows us to monitor our progress in implementing the strategy. Uh, so from that action plan for walking, we've now delivered all 44 actions and we're currently working on a new uh, two-year action plan. And some of those longer-term actions will continue over multiple years. And it's really been a great whole of government effort. So while the Department of Transport and Main Roads led the majority of actions, there's seven other agencies and departments that also own actions related to land use planning, tourism and uh, so on. Uh, so as a background to the rest of the presentation, I just want to give you an idea of the range of initiatives that we're wo working on under that walking strategy umbrella. Um, and all of this work is very reliant and having that good data to both do the planning and and to set those baseline measures. Oops, sorry. Uh, it's a little bit of a shameless plug of some of the great work that my team is doing, but I'm really proud of the Queensland Government for picking this up and doing such innovative work. Uh, the first one is the, um, so we launched the new uh, Walking Local Government Grants in October last year to support local governments to do uh, walking network planning around destinations like schools, public transport nodes and town centres. We've had nearly 60 applications from a third of all councils right across Queensland. So it's really encouraging to start a new walking program like this and get such a broad range of interest. Uh, and also our team in TMR is going to be leading walking network planning around some state-owned infrastructure at 11 locations across the state this year and next. So, uh, and the National Walking and Cycling Participation Survey gives us a really good baseline for 
walking participation and purpose. And, and that will be really useful over the next decade for assessing the impact of that work um, at that statewide level. So that walking network planning work is being further supported by training. So our engineering technology branch piloted a new two-day walking infrastructure masterclass in mid last year. We've had to sell out courses, paid courses at the end of last year. And, uh, and, it, and it was, it's been so popular, we've uh, scheduled another six courses this year. And clearly data sources and monitoring methods are part of that training course. But I also think we can in future weave some of the national survey data uh, findings into that course, especially to emphasise that importance of walking in most people's daily lives and uh, so which other survey methods have tended to underrepresent. Uh, on our TMR website, we've also released a new uh, walking guidance resources, guidance and resources page. Uh, so in addition to the walking network planning guidance, which informs those grants I mentioned earlier. There's also extensive guidance on walking data collection. Sorry, there's gremlins in my system. Uh, in, in addition to that walking network planning guidance, um, there's a lot of guidance on uh, walking data collection and existing data sources. So we've collated that into one central location, which probably has application um, uh, across Australia and New Zealand actually, so I'd recommend it to you. Now, as part of the, the walking strategy document suite, I mentioned we released the Walking Queensland baseline report for 2019, and it includes these listed metrics on the screen now, um, so that we've put in place a baselining and tracking our progress. So I'm sure you're aware there's not a lot of walking data sets out there to draw on at the moment. And so we've tended to draw on things like the household travel survey, which have really solid methodologies, but there's a tendency for it to have a Southeast Queensland or larger centre focus. And the keen item amongst you will most likely have noted that None of the measures here are from the National Walking and Cycling Participation Survey, and that's essentially because it, it didn't exist when we first wrote the strategy. Our cycling strategy, by contrast, depends quite heavily on the National Survey for, for monitoring and reporting. So on this front, there's some really great policy benefits for us of now being able to, of having that walk, those walking questions in this National Survey. It gives us a statewide focus. It, it allows national comparison, which we love, a bit of competition between the states. Uh, there's, it, it's regularly updated, so every two years. So it's a great way to monitor progress. It's moderately priced. And it gives us those really useful headline stats. Like for cycling, we can say, you know, in the order of 800,000 Queenslanders ride in a typical week, is a really great headline result to put into media releases and so on. But we, we have struggled with one aspect of the walking data though. And so this slide, uh, Cameron referred to this of course as well, that the main results from, the, the headline result from walking 
um, talks about the population proportions that have not walked in the last week by state. And as you can see, it's only a very small proportion of the population that hasn't walked. Uh, in Queensland, 95.9% .9 of people walked in the last week. And that's, of course, based on the definition of walking as five continuous minutes outside the home. Uh, and so in terms of measuring progress against a metric, uh, this will be difficult because 96% of the population already meets the criteria. So, so we don't have an issue with the question, it's, it's just a low benchmark. Uh, in the UK, there's a very similar question asked to the, for, in the walking and cycling national participation survey there. And in, in their case, the threshold is 20 minutes. Uh, and that uh, results in a, a, a lower output. So approximately 60 to 70% of people walk for 20 continuous minutes at least once a week. Uh, so we think this is something to consider for our survey, you know, whether a slightly higher threshold might be warranted. And there would be an opportunity to pilot that before the next survey. There is another perspective on this threshold, which only became more obvious to me when I compared the results to this slide with survey, similar survey we, work we did for our Queensland walking strategy in 2018. So our consultants did a phone survey of a representative sample of Queenslanders about walking purpose, motivations, barriers, and opportunities to increase walking. And um, I've been a bit neglectful in not including a chart of this in our slide pack, but Ekaterina has uploaded it to uh, the GoTo webinar system. Um, so you will be able to see it there. And it's also on our Department of Transport and Main Roads website with our strategy. But I will speak to just one notable difference in the results. So in our Queensland survey, we asked, for what purposes do Queenslanders walk? But only 5% of our survey respondents said to work, um, compared to about a quarter of the national survey respondents who said commuting was a purpose for walking. And <clears throat> So I expect, that, I expect that the difference is that our survey question might have led people to think about walking, <clears throat> sorry, to think about the walk leg to work. Um, <clears throat> sorry, let me start that again and I'll just have a drink for a moment. So I suspect that the difference is that our survey question might have led people to think about the whole journey Whereas the five minute threshold in the national survey might have allowed people to think of including that walk leg in their response. So it's potentially addressed the problem of walking being very underrepresented in walking surveys um, as a part of other trips. So in all, in accounting for the survey methodology differences, I'd definitely like us to pick up the national survey measures in our future strategy reporting, because it does help to highlight the importance of walking in so, so many activities of daily life. And it's really high representations in this slide on the screen of, of walking as you know, part of those, um, so many purposes. And I think in many ways, I've just argued against my own criticism of that minimum five minute threshold. So, you know, it is after all a 500 metre walk for many, uh, which is doing a useful job for both transport and health. 
So in summary, we, we really strongly support the continued inclusion of walking questions in the National Walking and Cycling Participation Survey. Uh, we could have a debate about that five minute threshold before we next run it, but it does provide us with really useful insight and insightful data and some great headline data that we will definitely be using as part of ongoing monitoring um, for cycling and walking strategies. And you know, maybe the walking data helps us to overcome some of those under, that underrepresentation of walking and other data sets. It's a really good value for money approach, this national survey. It gives us great statewide information and that regular two yearly update uh, in walking data terms, that's gold for us. So uh, I will hand over now to um, for Q and A. Thanks very much for that, uh, for, to all of you. That's been fantastic. Uh, I wanted to thank, thank all the presenters and also thank uh, Osroads today for hosting, hosting this webinar. It's been brilliant. Uh, there's been lots of questions, so thank you very much. Keep them coming uh, and I will attempt to go through them. I know Robin addressed it and it's also been addressed in the chat a little bit, but I thought it was worth continuing the conversation in five minutes threshold because there's been a lot of discussion about it and why and and whether we can add uh, additional questions such as 15 minutes to, to sort of tease out some more information. So Cameron, I might start with you to answer that question as to how we came up with that threshold. I know it has been addressed, but like I said, it just does keep coming up. So it'd be good to sort of have that proper discussion. Yeah, so this is a a real challenge, isn't it? Defining when does a walk become a walk? Um, so just to reiterate, well, I think what I may have mentioned before, our rationale was that we needed a minimum, that a walk from the front door to the garage to jump in your car is not a walk, that it was of relevance to us. And conversely, at the upper end, there are legitimate short walks walking up the street to the bus stop, walking from the train station to your office and so on, which may be of only five minute, 10 minute duration. So we kind of felt like we wanted as broad a definition as we could, but it does clearly result in an outcome that we see here, which is that the vast majority of the population walks, which you know, is intuitively reasonable. So I think I, I keep coming back to the question of what do we want to do this for? And once we can clearly articulate that, then perhaps that points us in the direction as to where that threshold should be, or alternatively, whether there should be a, an, another way of defining this. And I think I mentioned this in the chat that perhaps we should be looking to identify transport trips uh, so walking trips as part of transport journeys, walking up the street to the shops, walking to the bus stop, rather than the walking around the block with the dog type of trip. But again, there's the question of what do we need, want this data for? Cool, thanks. Robin, I'm gonna throw that over to you um, in terms of that question and sort of your going through your thought processes and what have you, which you, which you spoke about. 
in terms of answering that question is what what do we need that data for? So what as a from Queensland's point of view, what, how do you how would you answer that question? Uh, well, I think Cameron has um, answered it in part. You know, it's it, we we certainly want to understand um, for our own planning purposes about walking for transport, but actually a lot more um, groups use this data than we do just for transport. Uh, you know, a, a short walk is has benefit for health. A short walk has uh, it. Um, yeah, lots of different benefits, but I think that one of the bigger benefits um, for us in some ways is being able to really demonstrate that walking is you know, such an important part of a much of so many trips in our life and in people's lives. And I, I don't know that, it, that restricting it to travel only gives us enough of that, that, that message strongly enough. Um, and so, you know, why not capture that broader picture? I think it's a really powerful message, actually. So, you know, I've kind of just argued against my own, <laughs> um, uh, my, my own, uh, yeah. So, I, yeah, I think we we should support have, retaining that um, broader definition, actually, on further reflection. <laughs> Thank you, uh, Zareen. You wanted to contribute. Uh no, I just wanted to say, if you retain the broader definition and then uh, each agency or whoever has access to the raw data can um, screen out some of those other trip purposes from the respondents' um, information and look at the number of trips that are undertaken for various trip purposes and then potentially even look at each sub-region if we have sufficient information sufficient sample size, I mean. So for us in the CPD, for example, we'd be very interested in the short trips for transport purposes. Um, but in some of our outer suburban areas, it'd be really interesting to then look at those comparisons between trip purposes and other recreational purposes and understand the split uh, and the differences there. So I think retaining it is good and being able to pick it apart in the raw data if we have sufficient sample size is what you could do after that, depending on what your project um, objectives are. Perhaps what we could do, Zone, based on that, is you could actually ask, have you in the past week walked for five minutes or more for commuting to work, for recreation, for shopping, and so on? And then, then we could do that segmentation in quite a detailed way. So that, that could work. Uh, thank you very much for that. Um, I will. Uh, next question I'll put to, to Zarin. Um, so, uh, first of all, about the Striver Metro data, um, what what did you find when you compared it with the counters in WA, and has have the results of that analysis been published? Okay, um, we used it for a specific project purpose because looking at the whole network is problematic as whoever's asked that question knows. Um, and the reason we used it for a particular project was we were triangulating it with a few other data sources to look at um, user movement in and around um, areas of our two principal shared path projects that are part of this kind of key investment project evaluation that I'm undertaking. In particular, the Mitchell Freeway uh, PSP 
to the north of the Perth CBD and the Fremantle Railway PSP um, heading to the west. And what we found by looking at the Strava data as well as in, in parallel with the um, with the count data was a, for example, on the Mitchell Freeway, we saw a move away from the use of alternative unsafe routes and an increase in Strava users on the new shared path, which is logical. Um, but it's good to know that some of your dedicated users are actually switching away from riding on the road with traffic in alternative unsafe routes uh, and switching to your new shared path. So in addition to that, of course, we looked at the you know, the growth of, uh, in through the survey data, the growth in the self-reported typologies of the people um, responding and saw a greater diversity of users on the path as well. However, looking at the Fremantle shared path, we saw a greater diversity in the type of user who, were, who was using and the frequency of their um, weekly travel um, pre and post in the survey data. We also saw from the triangulation of the counts and the Strava data, um, a, a reduction of the use of this unsafe um, road, Curtin Ave, which is exactly parallel to the PSP, so good, they're using the new high quality shared path, that makes a lot of sense. But in addition to that, we looked at these alternative routes that people in the survey had identified uh, that they had previously been using in the pre-data um, collection phase and actually found an increase in use of these alternative routes amongst Strava users. And we took that, because of the increase in volumes, we also saw in the counter network along the PSP, we, and, and the, um, you know, increased satisfaction and all these other sentiments uh, and increased frequency of travel, self-reported frequency from the survey data, we took that to be an indication of an increased use overall in the area that people are being attracted to not only the shared path, but in fact, perhaps doing circular routes of that of that network, part of the network. And because of course you're parallel with the beach and the river on either side of the PSP. So it's a very picturesque location. It's natural to assume that people are being attracted into the area because in part due to the PSP, as well as the activation activities we're undertaking. So it's kind of a comprehensive suite of, of intervention as well as a comprehensive suite of triangulating different data sources. So that's how we've used the Strava data specifically. And in saying that, whoever's asked the question, we did actually use, um, we, we normalized the Strava data and the count data by picking alternative um, or control sites elsewhere on the network. And for every Strava, um, you know, uh, what's it called, um, edge, we picked the exact edge where the count data was so that we had a direct parallel. We knew that the count data was there in the pre and post periods as well as the Strava count data. So it was a very rigorous um, or comprehensive um, evaluative approach. Um, analytical methodology, I mean, and um, we worked with Data Analysis Australia to undertake that particular piece of analysis. And the it's just gone through Treasury for approval on the re report. Uh, for the phase one of that evaluation. And we should be ready to um, send that out to stakeholders and publish it on the website within the next month or two. So look out for it. Great, thanks for that. It's right on the hour. Uh, I understand if people have to go, I have been given the go ahead to go for another 10 minutes if our panelists are still able to hang around for a little bit longer. Just continuing with the questions uh, and also if any questions that we don't get to, um, we will, certainly answer them afterwards. 
Um, so people are dropping out, but we'll keep going. Um, so another question for Cameron. Um, on slide 16, uh, it had, uh, if people stated that they ride less frequency, less frequently, uh, how come there was an increase between 2019 and 2021? Was this new cyclists? Uh, yeah, so you could conceive of a situation where those riding ride less often, but there are more people riding. So they're not mutually exclusive. Um, so that, that's possibly what's going on here is that you had some people perhaps prior to COVID, and I speculate on this, who were riding into work every day. They're now not doing that, but they're going for a couple of recreational rides a week. Plus, we've got a whole new cohort of people which have suddenly started riding because they're bored at home. So participation has gone up, but the cycling frequency has gone down. Thank you. And I might actually just finish it off with a, a general question to all three of you, which has sort of been raised in a couple of different forms. Effectively, um, if, if there was a budget available and sort of given the information that you are after in your sort of individual things, how would you, what would you do to improve the survey? How would you change it or make it better? Um, Cameron, we'll start with you. So I, I like the idea of targeting. I keep coming back to this notion that we're not intervening at population scale. So what are we measuring? But we are intervening at local scales. We're building paths on particular corridors. Perhaps we're doing behavior change campaigns with schools, with particular age cohorts or gender cohorts. Let's target and focus our activity on those segments which we're seeking to, to change behaviours of. Cool. Um, Zareen? Yeah, um, I've been looking at sort of, maybe not minimum, but some kind of a, a more robust sample size minimum, if you like, for every regional, for every state in Australia, so that we all are confident in um, particularly the representation of um, regional areas and the de various demographic groups within those regional areas. But do you think it's important to have broad monitoring um, on, a, on this biannual basis? The other thing that I think is really important is the paralleling of survey questions, as Robin pointed out really with the walking survey and as I pointed out with the other question um, around typologies, kind of a parallel way that we apply our survey methodologies across areas and some agreement or more consensus on that. I know that's kind of one of the hardest things to undertake really. Um, so that we all kind of know that we're measuring similar things. But of course, if you don't innovate, then you don't know what else we can be measuring. So, you know, I've just counted my own comment there. Cool, thanks. And Robin. So, you know, there is always a limited real estate in a survey of this kind. And I think we lost some previous questions that had previously been in there because of having to, because we wanted to add walking. Uh, so I wouldn't change that. But we did actually have, um, we were able to use a previous um, question about how have you noticed uh, a difference, I think, Cameron, in the uh, has has cycling become more or less 
have conditions for cycling or walking become better, worse, or stayed the same um, than a year or than two years ago. And uh, we were able to use that previously really effectively by having those questions asked, the question asked at the state level. And then we also had a, uh, worked with the local governments in a few communities where we'd invested very heavily in um, cycling walking infrastructure and compared the results in those communities with areas where there hadn't been so much investment. And it really did demonstrate um, that where we were investing, people actually noticed the difference. So, you know, I think there's probably a few areas like that where maybe that's not the only type of question where we could draw out those kinds of observations. But uh, yeah, it was just a, a you know, we, we can use this um, data, I think, overall more effectively by getting a few, even if it's just um, in a few areas, doing those more, those higher sample sizes, perhaps. So there's a, there's a couple of, there's a few different ways that we can use the quest, use the data, even if we can't ask additional questions, I think, too. Cool, thank you. Um, I've got another five minutes left, so I might just throw one more in. There's been a couple of questions around um, the effects of COVID and the effects on numbers. And uh, one interesting one uh, is about, um, so we know that it did have a big effect on participation rates um, and in for whether um, since children ride and walk a lot and many walk and ride to school, although we know that's not enough, um, but in some jurisdictions schools were closed and have we examined the effect of this or is that something, can we examine the effect of that? I think it's perhaps I don't know, Cameron, Robin. Yeah, um, so I think the question is, how has the purpose split changed with COVID? Uh, so we do have cycling trip purposes, so we could look at the trends in those. The, the problem with, say, cycling to education is, as I think Chris alluded to, cycling rates to school are minuscule, unfortunately. Uh, and so when they're small, off, as Zarian alluded to, a survey which has modest sample sizes, then you have very wide confidence intervals. So you, your result tends to bounce around all over the place in a way that you can't really discern a signal from the noise. Uh, and that's one of the real challenges here. And this sort of comes to this constant dilemma we have where we'd all love to have a sample size that's 10 times larger than we do. But of course that has budget implications. And because we're relying on each state and territory to part contribute funding for these surveys, if one or more of those jurisdictions chooses not to contribute, then you, you have issues. Uh, and so the fact that the survey has actually continued over 10 years is not necessarily unique, but very unusual. Uh, and and probably I'd suggest that the cost of it has probably helped in that regard, that it is relatively cost effective. Cool, thank you for that. Yep, Zarin? I was just gonna say, um, I think it's very difficult to pick it apart based on school 
areas just because there are so many of them across the network and there'd probably be different patterns that occur in each depending on a whole number of different things in relation to the infrastructure availability and different sub-demographic types, etc. But one thing we have noticed here in WA in relation to putting insights together or discussing or comparing the insights of um, the survey data, not only the NWCPS, but also our um, general pop surveys that we've been doing um, on a sort of an annual basis since 2020, uh, in as well as compar comparing that in parallel with our bike counter data insights, especially since we've been being able to split them out based on sub-regional areas within, say, the Perth Metro, um, is we saw a massive spike, obviously, in participation in 2020, um, which everybody seems to have seen. Um, and then that a drop of that spike um, in 2021, um, but still above the 2019 levels. And so that's kind of general how many people are out there on the network. But as an indication of volumes that were occurring as well from our, looking at our counter network, we saw a significant drop in volume of bike riding into and out of the Perth CBD, so our cordon, which is understandable. Less people are commuting to work, um, or certainly were over that 20 that period in 2020 between April and uh, June. Um, and that volume doesn't seem to have really bounced back. Um, what we did also see, though, was a huge spike in volume of bike riding in picturesque locations and suburban areas around Perth, so outer areas, which could be an indication that more people are undertaking that activity um, in the suburban areas. Could be relation to you know, school trips, but it could also be people like Cam mentioned before, who um, were riding to the CBD previously, who still want to get a ride in every day and might find it easier to ride a few more times a week. And so they're the ones that are out there on the network hitting the counters more frequently um, in the suburban areas. So, you know, there's a whole range of different things going on, but I think what's been picked up here overall is that if you want to target a particular intervention, say around a school zone, you need to design metrics for that particular objective. Um, and pick up on that. And you can look at what's happening generally in your network trends as a way of informing some of that location, but you still need to design a suite of measures specific to that location. You can't attribute the change to it. Great, thank you very much for that. Um, it's just after 10 past, so I should probably wind up. Uh, thank you once again to our participants and being very generous with your time and sharing your insights on the survey for that and thank you to all the attendees uh, uh, and um, I'll hand it back to Ekaterina. Thanks so much Sam and thanks Zarin, Robin, Cameron and uh, all our attendees um, who have stayed with us for this extra 10 minutes. Um, just a few final things before we let you go. As you can see on this slide, we have a bunch of really interesting sessions coming up in March. Please visit our website for more information and to register or subscribe to our newsletter. Um, and as you exit, uh, there will be a questionnaire that will pop up on your screen. Please take a couple of minutes uh, and send us your feedback. Uh, it really helps us to know what you liked or didn't like about the session and what suggestions you have for future 
webinars. Um, once again, today's uh, session is being recorded and we will send you the link to the recording when it's published on our website. With the questions that we have left, we will attempt to answer as many as we can and we'll send you the response in writing after the session as well. Thanks again, everyone. Stay well and safe um, and enjoy the rest of your day.